0: Well, good morning, everybody. I'm so excited that you're here today, and maybe you're not excited to be here today. Maybe you've been thinking about the things that have been happening in the world, and you've got this tension that's inside of you, either stuff that's happened in your life or stuff that's just happening around the world. If you think about the last two weeks, do you feel the tension that is just rising up, like across the world, but across cyberspace <laughs> and across the metro? Like, I think about the terrorist attacks in Paris and how people have um, risen up in this support of France. At least most people have stood up. And then um, we've seen this shooting, and maybe you haven't seen it, but we've heard about this shooting in northeast Minneapolis. And how um, there's just been a rising up of response to this. And, and how there's been this polarizing that seems to be happening. And there's this been this polarizing that seems to be happening in both of these ways with response to the Syrian refugee crisis. It seems like um, we're polarizing between protection and maybe compassion. And I don't want I don't to th- just throw out some, I, what I hope you realize are not simple questions. They're very complex questions. But I say this because this is the world that we're living in. And, and we should, and we need to be able to have a, a faith-filled response to this. What would Jesus Christ do if he were here today in the flesh, in, in, in his presence, and, and say to these things? I believe he is here in his spirit. And I believe he does have responses to this. I believe he does have answers to this, but they're not easy answers, just like they're not easy questions. Now, if you've been with us for this series that we've been talking about in Esther of faith in a hostile world, then you've you've heard us talk about what it means to have faith in a hostile world. But in some of these situations, I think today we come to this place of I need more than faith in a hostile world because it doesn't seem like faith is enough in any of those situations. Well, let's review for the for the moment in case... You've got to catch up, because this is, this is one quick drama of a book. It really is meant to be read in one sitting, and the Jews would read this in one sitting every year, but just by way of review, Esther and Mordecai are these two characters that are the heroes of the story, and they are the paradigm of what it means to have faith in a hostile world. They have engaged their culture rather than running away from it, rather than criticizing it, rather than simply accepting it. They've walked into it with this attitude to transform. And not only that, they have stood against enemies, like external enemies that are obvious in the story, this guy Haman, who's plotting their death. But they've also stood against internal enemies that I think each of us face every day, specifically enemies of pride and enemies of doubt. They've risen up in this confident way by securing their identity in their faith, by gaining wisdom from others, by having generous relationships, people that care about them, people that encourage them. And then they remain teachable to to not rest in the place they are. And they become these agents who act in the moment of crisis. Not sit back, but step forward. They do so in a way because they have really accepted where they're at, even if they don't like it. We heard that from Danielle in in the announcements. Accept where you're at, but know that God has you there for a purpose, that he's not going to let plans of evil stay evil, that they will turn into plans of good. These two characters have prayed, and they've made plans, and they take a stand against an enemy. They take a stand in a day of evil. And those are really good things. I think most of us would say, hey, if we took a stand like that, if we took care of our family, if we took care of maybe even our friends, made sure we took care of ourselves, if we did that good, that would be great. And I agree. It would. It would be great. Except when there's people suffering. Defenseless people suffering. Then, then that faith in a hostile world is it's not enough. I think God calls us to lead faithfully in those moments. And here's where I get that. I get that um, with the risk of removing all the tension. I get that from the very end of the book. So if you have a Bible or you have it on your phone, um, my favorite is the Bible app. You'll want to click or turn there. The very last verse of the book, I'll have it up here, but you might want to underline or note it, is this kind of capstone of what has happened, what has transpired in the midst of this evil. It says in verse 3 of chapter 10 that Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, the greatest kingdom of the world at that time in Persia, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his fellow Jews. Why? Because he worked for the good of his people and he spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Okay, so today, let's look at what exactly that means and why it's so important. How does that work out? What does that mean to speak up, speak for the good of the people and work for the good, or work for the good of the people and speak up for the welfare of the Jews? So if we want to see what that means, I think we have to turn back a couple chapters to chapter 8. Now, we've talked in the story, I've kind of caught us up, and the, the roles, the crisis has all been reversed now. The, the, the king, King Xerxes, has discovered that his prime minister has been secretly stealing and wanting and hoarding all this power, because we never face people like that in our jobs and in our families, people that want the power, that might be scheming for the power. But the king has realized that his, his second in command has been scheming for power and has been scheming for destruction. And so he is actually executed right before this point. But it says in chapter eight, that same day that all this has transpired, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther, who comes and saves her people, who comes before the king and exploits, ex, um, just reveals this plot for these people and says, now this is the guy who did it, and and now she is freed. And not only that, it says that that. The king gave the estate, that means the house, the riches, um, all the resources of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Esther. And then Mordecai came into the presence of the king, which is a no-no if you're uninvited, but the king invited Mordecai into the presence of the king because Queen Esther has now told him not only that they're both Jews, but that they're actually related, they're family. Mordecai's been his, her adoptive father and the king took off his signet ring which he had reclaimed from Haman and presented it to Mordecai and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate and we should like we should be excited there's this moment of celebration it's almost like they won the lottery Remember if you still watch the news or watch the internet version of the news when they present the checks to people and the excitement they get on their face? I mean, this is kind of that moment. Haman has been plotting and scheming. He has riches upon riches. He's actually bragged about it before this point, and they are handed over to Esther who says, Mordecai, you can be in charge of this. You've been in charge of me. You've been proven faithful, and I want to put you in charge of that. And we would think there would be this moment of celebration. And then we see Esther pleading with the king. Think about that word, pleading. And falling at his feet. And weeping. And begging. We should see a huge juxtaposition in that. Why does she not have the excitement of winning the lottery? Why does she not have the excitement of celebration, of seeing these things overturned? Because her focus is not on her. In that moment, she cares so much more about the people that are voiceless, the Jews all around her empire that will be killed. Because the, the Haman, this evil guy, had planned this day that's actually still nine months away surely there's got to be a few moments to enjoy. It's nine months away. Mordecai has been this lowly assistant for his time. He's been wearing rags around this whole time. And, and this moment, he's been given authority. This moment, he's been given riches. This moment, he can surely have attend one party. Think about all the influence he could have. And yet, that's not his focus. You know, I don't know, all the commentators, and I think, I think if you think about wise people in your life or maybe good people in your life, they say things like, you know, wealth, status, and, and, and personal security, those things don't really satisfy. Right? Like, you've heard this from people or some version of that. But don't you sometimes go, well, they're not supposed to satisfy but it's sure nice to have. Do you ever find yourself kind of focused on those things? Or am I the only one? Am I the only one that hears when when a friend's furnace goes out, like, man, I'm glad that's not my house. Like, oh, that's too bad for you, but I'm so glad that's not my house right now. See, God cares about your security firmly believe that. God cares about your, your wealth, um, and I mean that in a very big sense of the word. God cares about your status, but he cares more about the status of your heart. And he cares more about the condition of the world. And his question is not, do you have it or do you not? It's, where are you focused? For a majority of your day, what do you think about when you go through the line at the store, do you get mad that it's too long? Or are you thankful that you have money to buy the things that you have? When the person in front of you is, is all dis- in disarray and they can't find their money, do you have a moment of prayer for them? Or do you have this moment of frustration for them? And I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. I'm just trying to emphasize that I think this part in the story is asking us, do we focus more on me Or we. Because if we want to lead faithfully, we've got to change our focus from me to we. That's what we see in the story. That's what we see Esther and Mordecai doing, is they're saying they're working for the good of the people, and it moves them from their own interests to the interests of others. It moves from individual to communal. It moves from this place of yes, we need to be concerned about ourselves but not only ourselves. It's this moment in the begging and pleading and these gut-wrenching words that I think the writer is trying to connect us with this idea of compassion. See, compassion is this word that means to go down to our guts. In, fe- in, this, in this moment of feeling that actually would cause us to do something. It's the same thing that happens when the writers of the New Testament talk about Jesus going through and seeing his people. And he says in, I believe it's Matthew, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he felt this compassion for them. Jesus moves from me to We. We're invited to do that, and, and Esther does it so eloquently in the story. If you, if you read the next part, it says that she begs and weeps, and she causes this emotional response, and the king extends his gold scepter, which is his permission for her to speak, and then she stands up. She stands up in this moment of, I know exactly what I'm asking, If it pleases the king and he regards me with favor, think about those qualifiers. If it pleases the king, if he regards me with favor and he thinks it's the right thing to do and he is pleased with me, that's a lot of qualifiers. I know I've asked for a lot of things this day if you think about how long this day was, I know I've asked for a lot of things, king, but I'm going to ask for one more. Let an order be written overruling the dispatches, the edict that, that Haman, son of Hammedatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. But see, you got to remember, Haman wrote this with the king's authority. She should be saying, hey, king, let an order be written to work against the stupid order that you signed to destroy all of us. But that probably wouldn't go over very well. She's she's beautiful in the story. We also find out she's very brilliant. So she puts it all on this other guy. But she says, How can I bear to see the destruction and disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to watch this happen to my family? It's brilliant. It's changing the focus. It's seeing, in fact, I think it even goes further. It's moving from this, not just seeing from me to we, but instead also this moment of saying, I've got to speak on behalf of people who can't speak. I'm going to change my focus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move, how did I say it? I'm going to move to where I'm helping the defenseless be defendable. I'm going to help the defenseless be defendable. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, pickup trucks, really nice pickup trucks. I love the ones that have the bumper sticker that says, yes, this is my truck, and no, I will not help you move. (laughs) Now, I realize there's people that really need help moving, but I have to often think about, are you really defenseless in this? I'm a child of the 80s, through and through, I'll just, I'll just own it, and before there were digital shorts and Saturday Night Live, there were poems by Jack Handy, Deep Thoughts they were called, okay? My favorite Deep Thought of Jack Handy is, you know, when I go through my day, I carry around two bags, and that way, when I walk up to someone that says, hey, can you give me a hand, I say, nope, I got my two bags, See, I think there's this natural instinct in us to worry about our own good. And it's not bad to worry about our own good. It's not bad to worry about the good of our family. It's not bad to worry about the good of our friends. And it's not bad to worry about the good of our church. It's very good. But I find myself so often shifting to, can I find two bags? (laughs) I think that person's coming, and they might ask for my help. And, and that's what we get with the king. The king has the power to grant life and death. And you can hear the weariness in his voice. The king replied to Esther and Mordecai the Jew. You know, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther and I've impaled him on a pole that he set up for Mordecai. So uh, I'm kind of done. It's been a long day. I mean, the day started with your banquet the night before, and then I couldn't sleep, and I had this bout of insomnia, so then I had to have someone read to me, and I had them read my book, because I like myself. And so, in the book, they just happened to read about Mordecai, who I found out saved my life from an assassination attempt, and so I'm like, oh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't ever thank him. So I asked Haman, who came in that day, to say, what would I do for someone who I haven't thanked? And Haman put this grand scheme together probably because he thought that he was the one who was going to be rewarded. So then Haman traipses around with Mordecai honoring him in shame and as Esther's preparing this banquet and then I go to another banquet and then I find out that, that Haman, my prime minister, my most trusted official, he's trying to destroy my wife and so now I've killed him and I've given his estate. I'm kind of done. Do you ever have moments like that? Where you're, you're like, hey, Rob, I I don't carry around two bags. (laughs) Like, that's weird. (laughs) I don't think, uh, I don't want to put a bumper sticker on my truck that says, I will not help you move. That's not my attitude. But you have these moments where you're like, I'm just done. Like, I've gone this far, and I'd like to stop. I don't want to take the time to help one more person. (laughs) Now, we might not be kings or queens. We might not have the power to grant life and death. But friends, so many of us have more power than we realize. See, when I see the Syrian refugees, it's so easy for me to go, that is too big. I I can't do everything I can to help them. And then it's so easy to not do anything. But I learned this principle about seven years ago from uh, a pastor in Atlanta, Andy Stanley. Some of you might have heard of him. He says, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. See, what we see here with Esther is she goes, I can't do everything, but I can do something. So So that thing I'll do, I'll do it. I have the power to go in front of the king. I have the power to plead for my people, and so I will. I don't know the answer. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I will help the defenseless be defendable. And if every one of us could see maybe just one thing that we could do and do it, imagine how the world would be transformed, especially if we did it. In the name of Jesus, in the spirit of Jesus, and by the power of Jesus. There are so many stories, so many stories of good happening in the refugee crisis, of good happening in the Paris attacks, of good happening even in the midst of of challenge, of questionable shooting, of, of racial dividing. There is good that is happening because someone is doing something. We've got to change our focus from me to we, but then I think we've got to move to this place where we can see and seek the good of others. See, this, this phrase, speaking up for the welfare of people, it's, it's a really unique phrase. Now, if you've read the book, then certainly you, you could probably get a little stuck in the exact edict because it says in verse 9, at once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Silvan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders because the king, though he's not interested in helping them, says, write whatever you think best. So Mordecai and Esther, you have the authority, I give you the authority to write whatever you, whatever you want to reverse, basically, to make a counter-decree. And so at once, the royal secretaries were summoned, and they wrote out all of Mordecai's words to the Jews, to the princes, the governors, the nobles, the satraps of all of the provinces of this king, stretching across India to Cush, which is Ethiopia, and these orders were written in the script of each province, in the language of each people, and to the language of the Jewish people, so they would know that um, this is for them. And Mordecai wrote in the name of the king, sealed the dispatch, dispatches with the king's signet ring and then sent out mounted couriers who rode by fast horse. It's like the Pony Express, people. But here's the thing. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed to do this was the same day that their evil enemy had prompted and, and said in their edict, I'm giving you the order to attack these people. Now, I don't want to um, try and smooth over the violence that is in here, but I want you to think about the fact, if you've read the book, that the first edict in chapter 3 said, I'm ordering these people, like the rest of the of the of the empire, to kill, destroy and annihilate the Jews and to take all their property. He's giving this order. And the edict is written word virtually word for word to counteract every evil scheme. The violence that is in here is is only permission, not an order. And it's written to go word for word with the other edict. And so then you find out that 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 people were killed, that lots of people were killed. And, and it's easy to think, well, well, why? Well, that would be the people that were in the provinces that knew that first edict, and they were mounting and getting ready to kill the Jews to take their property, because it's easy to steal property when the king is giving you permission to do so, And they hear about this counter edict of how the Jews can defend themselves and they go, yeah, let's do it anyway. Let's go after them anyway. So yes, there are people killed. The ones foolish enough to attack the people after they could defend themselves. See, when I say that I think leading faithfully means that we help the defenseless be defendable, I'm not saying that we should turn these victims these powerless victims, into new oppressors. I'm just saying that they have a voice at the table. Not handouts. Voice at the table. That, th- that, that we see people in the world, people across the pew, people across the street, people across the, the school desk, people across the office, as human beings that deeply matter to God and that we would respond with love, that we'd respond with compassion, that we'd respond in the way that we would want someone else to respond to us. This isn't a matter of saying we should bring every person to a point where they they attack others. No, attack was never part of the plan. But being able to be treated and seen as a human being with worth, well, that's what I think the edict does. See, this last phrase, speaking up for the welfare of the people. In, in, in the Hebrew, the, the language that it was written in, he was seeking the people's Shalom. That's what Mordecai was doing. That's what Esther was doing. She was seeking the peace, the, the people's shalom. Now, shalom was not just peace. It was this idea, of, this idea of wholeness, this idea of prosperity, this idea of welfare and of goodness. And this phrase is written in a couple other places in the Bible that's worth noting. Like, for example, it's written in 1 Samuel 17, which if you're not like, oh, I know exactly where that is. That's fine. The point is that Jesse is this father, and he sends David, one of his youngest sons, out to check on the shalom of his brothers. His brothers are encamped in the valley of Hebron, where, uh, the valley of Elah, where there's a giant evil person named Goliath and their army that's challenging God's people and God's armies. And David is asked to go and check on their shalom. A father sends a son to check on his brothers. Then in Genesis 37, we see another father, his name is um, Jacob, and Jacob's name will be Israel, and he has 12 sons, and he sends out his favorite son, his beloved son, the son that's hated by his brothers, who can't speak a word of shalom to them, to go see to the shalom of his brothers. Does that sound like anyone you know? That a father would send a beloved son to go to his people, to all people, to find them wholeness, to find them goodness, to find them in a place of peace and prosperity and restored relationship with the father that loves them. See, this is what Jesus does. Even if he's rejected, he goes to seek the shalom of his brothers and sisters. This is what Esther does. She seeks the shalom of her brothers and sisters. She doesn't say, oh, I'm so glad that I'm safe. I need to make sure that everybody has a chance here. David, who's the anointed but not yet recognized king, goes to check on his brothers and they ridicule him. Joseph goes to check on his brothers. They reject him. They beat him. They leave him for dead, and God has plans that will bring him to a place of good, and he will save their people. See, we don't always know the whole story, and you might be in a place where you're like, I don't have a happy ending, and we're not promised happy endings, but what we're promised is that in the midst of evil, in the midst of things where you're like, this is not right, there's a God who is sending his Son and his Spirit to seek the good of his brothers and sisters to seek the shalom of his people to bring you to a place and me to a place and us to a place where we're restored with God and we can focus on others it's a good news we don't have to do anything for it god comes in the greatest evil in the most horrific time in history. And I I know we can think that it's bad now. The Roman Empire was one of the greatest times of evil in the entire world, in history. And he sends his son to seek the shalom of his people. Now what would it look like for you and I to seek the shalom of our brothers and sisters? When I asked that to our staff, my our creative arts director, Leah, said, "Oh, oh! I gotta tell you about this, this story about Calvin. See, she um, went to church for a time in downtown Philly, and the church was made up of homeless people, college students, and a handful of business professionals. Sort of an eclectic group of people, right? Yeah, and every, day, every Sunday that they would meet, after church, then they would share a meal together. And so she, w- she met a lot of homeless people, but none quite like Calvin, See, a lot of people can choose to be homeless, but Calvin chose to be homeless for a completely different reason. In fact, his reason made him look a lot like Esther and a lot like Mordecai and a lot like David and a lot like Joseph, and dare I say, a lot like Jesus. See, Calvin chose to be homeless so that he could reach homeless people with the message of Jesus. He willingly gave up a place to live and a security that, that he could have enjoyed so that he could relate to people that he found it very hard to reach and very hard to relate to. But he lived on the streets, and he befriended people, and he guided people to places of safety and of shelter. He even helped the police solve crimes because he was so connected with the homeless people and they found an eternal home, even if they never had a temporary residence. That's seeking the good and the shalom of people. When we do this armful of love, it's seeking the shalom of people. It's bringing them not a gift, but it's bringing hope. When we partner with the Sheridan story, what we talked about last week, this weekend backpack feeding program, and um, we got almost $500 last Sunday from that plus anyone who helped with the tithe challenge, you are seeking the shalom of your brothers and sisters. And that is something that you can feel good for. So if you haven't won the lottery, if you don't feel like you're in this place of of success, know that anywhere you are, you can seek the shalom of your brothers and sisters. And trust me, the world will know. Would you pray with me? God, I know that we are all in different places and we all view the, the issues of today potentially differently because we're different people. But God, I pray that that would not bring us to a point of fear, that it wouldn't bring us to a place of anger, and it wouldn't bring us to a place where we're so polarized that we can't see you in the midst of it. So God, help us to see you in this story and help us to see us in this story, wherever we're at, whichever character we might identify with. For, for those, God, that, that are in a place where they have the power to grant um, good things and they are being asked by friends or family or employees to help them. God, would you cause them to change the focus from me to we and, and seek the shalom of that person. God, would you cause us, if we are in a place where we can't do everything, where we're not even sure we can do one thing, but maybe we can do something, would you bring us to a point where we can seek the shalom of your people? We're thankful, God, that you came in the darkest time to seek our shalom, to seek our good, to seek our wholeness. And Jesus, to restore us with you when we say yes to you, when we say, I believe in you, I want you in my life. God, would that transform us into the people that you've always seen us as yours.